Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, "This this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Pushkin Industries. This is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. This episode is going to be a little different from what we usually do here on Deep Background because it's going to involve a switcheroo. It's going to be a conversation between me and Jacob Weisberg. Jacob is the head of Pushkin Industries, which is the podcast production company that makes this show. He's also the person who had the idea for Deep Background in the first place and called me and said, hey, Noah, maybe you want to try a podcast. And the reason that I asked Jacob to come on the show and take my job is that the conversation we're going to have is about a new book that I've wrote that's being published today called The Arab Winter, A Tragedy. For those of you who've been writing in to say that it's time for us to add some non-COVID topics alongside our COVID coverage, this one's for you. And I promise that we'll return to COVID coverage in our very next episode later this week. Jacob, thank you so much for coming to Deep Background. Uh, Well, Noah, thanks for inviting me to 
play you on your show for an episode. It's a tall order. Um, and I also want to thank you for um, prompting me to read your new book, Arab Winter, which I really enjoyed. I mean, it's a very short book, which made it easy, but it's so packed with ideas about what happened in the Arab Spring and challenging, I guess, the conventional wisdom that the Arab Spring was a complete disaster. Let's go back to the beginning. What was the Arab Spring? Where did it happen? Why did it happen? What was it? The Arab Spring was a kind of single episode that then spread into a region-wide contagion. But the contagion was, at least in the first instance, a really good one. It started in Tunisia, which is a tiny little country, barely 10 million people, and which is not usually thought of as hugely influential in the Middle East. In fact, most of the time, even most people in the Arab world never think about Tunisia at all. And what set it off initially was that a poor, frustrated fruit seller who had been subject to abuse from government officials and whose money supply was running out killed himself in a very dramatic way. He set himself on fire. It's a horrible tragedy. And in response to the sense that he had quite literally ignited a sense of protest, hundreds of thousands of Tunisians, ordinary Tunisians from all different social classes, all different backgrounds, started going into the streets and protesting their governments. And they developed a couple of key slogans. The most famous of one was, the people want the overthrow of the regime. And they chanted it, and they chanted it. And remarkably and incredibly, within a couple of weeks, the regime gave way. And the guy who had been the dictator of the country for almost 20 years left the country. And suddenly, people were realizing that they had the opportunity to remake their political system almost entirely. So that's how it started. But then, if that, that had been the only story, it would have been an incredible story. It would have been a huge success story of one tiny little country. But what happened is that it was contagious. And so what you got were what started as copycat demonstrations in much bigger and more consequential countries, most famously Egypt. And then in Egypt, the same story played out again, at least initially, and people were chanting the same chants, and they were watching each other on Arabic-speaking satellite TV, so they knew what the other people were saying in the other countries. Each of these protests had some local flavor. They were substituting the name of their own dictator. But basically, the script was repeated. And in Egypt, it seemed to work too. The dictator left there too. And then it was tried in other countries as well. And so it was a kind of sweeping contagion of attempts at political self-determination in a bunch of Arabic-speaking countries. So let's talk about Egypt a little bit as the place where the Arab Spring seemed to turn dramatically into what you call the Arab winter. You know, first you had this moment in Tahrir Square where protesters were out demanding the end of the autocratic regime, a democratic replacement, and they got it. They got the Morsi government elected. And then people turned out in Tahrir Square again and demanded, as it were, the end of democracy. Why did that happen and what do you make of it? These two events, which I call for short in the book, Tahrir 1 and Tahrir 2, were bookends to a very, very intense year and three quarters in which a lot of things happened, some of which seem to follow the correct way that we in democratic countries imagine things should go when a dictator comes down, and some of which went wildly the other way. So the first thing is that it took some time, but after the army had ordered the old dictator, Hosni Mubarak, to leave, 
there eventually were big, pretty free public elections. And there were machinations along the way. There was a question of who would be allowed to run for office and could old regime people run for office? And what about members of the Muslim Brotherhood, which was the largest social slash political organization in the country? But ultimately there was an election. It was pretty free. And what happened is that the Brotherhood candidate won the presidency narrowly. The Brotherhood won a plurality, not a majority, but a plurality in parliamentary elections. And the Brotherhood won the chance to craft a new constitution. And that panicked a lot of people who were afraid of what used to be called one person, one vote, one time. People who said, look, if the Muslim Brotherhood writes the constitution, if they become the people who are the dominant political party, they're going to abolish democracy. Now, to be sure, that wasn't their claim. They said, we're going to be democratic, we're going to write a constitution, but that was the worry that a lot of people had. And slowly but surely, various things happened that left those folks more and more concerned and worried. But it was a very complicated dance. So just to give you the most prominent example, the constitutional court of Egypt, which was made up at the time still of people from the old regime, disbanded the legislature. It said the elections had been illegitimate and it disbanded the legislature. That left Morsi, who was the newly elected president, in a position where he couldn't govern through the legislature. And so then his critics started saying, he's an autocrat, he's an autocrat, he's governing autocratically. Well, of course he was governing autocratically because there was no legislature. And there was a deep worry that he was, they were going to do the same thing with the Constitutional Assembly and disband that too. And so the Muslim Brotherhood rammed through a constitution very, very fast without listening to dissenters. And Morsi himself, afraid that the Constitutional Court would block that, issued an edict where he said, nobody can put me out of office. The Constitutional Court can't put me out of office until the Constitution is in place. Now, in practice, that was only going to be a week or two. But then his opponent said, look, now he's made himself a dictator. And ultimately, what that led to is that opponents of the Brotherhood and opponents of the regime came back into the streets and they replicated what they had done in January and February and March of 2011. And they demanded with the same slogans and the same chants, with a comparable number of people in the square, that the army get rid of the elected democratic president. And after some delay, the army did. And so what happened was that the first time they were getting rid of a dictator, but the second time they were getting rid of the guy who had been elected president. And that led to the army taking over again. And that was the end of democracy in Egypt. So that's the real conundrum, Noah, and you, you talk about this at the level of, of democratic theory and political philosophy, but can there be a democratic decision to eliminate democracy? And, you know, if so, why is a democratic decision to do that valid? I mean, by making such a decision as it were democratically, you're invalidating the idea that democratic decisions should be the ones that count. I agree with you. It's a super hard problem. And I really struggled with it. And I try to show that struggle in the book and try to, to lay out both sides of the possible view. I mean, you could take the view, I don't take this, but you could take the view that when the people with a capital P get together and demand democracy, that's legitimate. That's democratic because they're asking for democracy. But when the same people get together and say, we don't want democracy anymore, we want to get rid of a democratic leader, that's undemocratic. And in the end, I don't buy that. And the reason I don't buy it is that what makes the choice of democracy in the first place legitimate isn't that there's some fair process or fair procedure for democracy. I mean, what it really amounts to is a lot of people going to the public square and saying, get rid of the dictator. 
I mean, in Egypt, they didn't even say, give us democracy. They just said, get rid of the dictator. And then they held elections. And so what made that legitimate was that in some sense, the Egyptian people as a collective were saying what they wanted. And they weren't doing it through a procedure. And you couldn't count them all up and figure out if they were a majority of the public, which of course they weren't. It was legitimate because it was an expression of genuine popular sentiment. And then when the same number of people, or maybe even more, do the same thing and call for the changing of the democratic system, they're not operating within the ordinary rules of democracy. But you have to believe, I think, that what they're doing is just as legitimate as when people call to get rid of the dictator. Otherwise, the first one isn't legitimate. I think whatever rules you apply to figure out whether the demand to get rid of a dictator is legitimate are going to give you the same result when people do the same thing to say they want to get rid of a government which was democratically elected. So, you know, I think the upshot of that is that we forget that democracy is something that the people choose, and therefore democracy is something that people could choose not to choose. It's not inevitable. It's not necessary. It's not the only system of government that's fair or legitimate. But in advance of a legitimate constitutional system, which lets people have votes with equal weight, you do have this problem of being back to, you know, the general will. I mean, it's who constitutes the people and what determines which people and whose views predominate. We didn't count the people in Tahrir Square. And why, for that matter, should only people in Cairo and the nation's capital who have the ability to turn out in the, in the biggest public square have a say in determining what the general will is? I totally agree. And, you know, I try to use a thought experiment to get people to ask themselves what their own intuitions are about this. What I say is, Think of what it felt like to you if you were watching when you saw people in dictatorships going out into the streets in hundreds of thousands and saying, you know, leave, or we want the end of the regime, or, you know, we demand social justice. What happened in Ukraine or what happened in so many countries in Eastern Europe when authoritarian governments were brought down by public protests? Exactly. In all of these places, you can ask yourself, what do you feel when you see on TV thousands or hundreds of thousands of people making this demand? And if you feel, and I think most people do feel, wow, you know, that's great. That's real. Those people are, you know, taking charge and the world should listen to them. Then you share in some way the intuition, I think, that there is such a thing as a people which is capable of speaking for itself, even though in none of those cases is there a formal vote, is there a census, are there districts with ballots, the whole apparatus that we associate with a democracy that's up and running only exists when a democracy is up and running. You know, at that initial moment of demand, there's something about the core collective political action of the people that's motivating people, and it's motivating us to think that that is legitimate and that is democratic. And that, that is hard because we're so used to thinking of democracy in terms of vote counts and districts. But democracy is more than that. It's, it's bigger than that. And it's also much more vulnerable than just the kind of democracy that plays by the rules. Democracy doesn't always play by the rules. We'll be back in just a moment. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames 
or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients. Each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus.
know, the book seems to be very much an attempt to salvage something positive from the Arab Spring. And you focus a lot on this idea of these Arab countries taking political responsibility for themselves the first time after, you know, centuries of imperialism and then these autocracies that gave the people no say. You say basically, you know, at least they're taking responsibility for their own destinies. And the really hopeful example you talk about is Tunisia, where you mentioned the Arab Spring began. You were involved um, in the effort at constitution writing there, giving some advice to the Constitutional Commission Talk a little bit about both your experience and why Tunisia remains the one real bright spot to come out of the Arab Spring. So, yeah, I was very lucky. I was in Tunisia six times during the process of their constitutional negotiations. And partly because it was a small country with a relatively small political elite, partly because I kept on coming back. What began as an opportunity just to show up and learn turned into an opportunity to collaborate a little bit with people who were actually drafting the constitution. and. You know, I and my research associate who went with me made, I don't know, I think a couple of hundred suggestions, all of them at the request of people on on the Constituent Assembly. And a whole bunch of them got incorporated into the Constitution. I have no idea if they were incorporated because we recommended them or because they were just good ideas that everybody would have thought of anyway. You can never quite measure those things, and that's probably a good thing. It's their Constitution. But yeah, I was very fortunate to be sitting there in the drafting rooms, in the delegates' dining rooms, and I got to observe up close and personal, why their negotiation process worked when constitutional negotiations didn't work in other countries. And the reason was that everybody in the room knew, no matter whether they liked each other or hated each other, and no matter how much they distrusted each other, and they did distrust each other, that no one was coming to save them. No one really cared enough about Tunisia to intervene in a big way in their constitutional process. The U.S. wasn't coming to save them. You know, the European countries were not coming to save them. They were on their own. The other Arab countries weren't coming to save them. And so they had to compromise. And they compromised like crazy. All sides made compromises that their own political core supporters thought were terrible compromises, and they made them anyway. And I think that is really what got them ultimately through. And it's why they developed a consensus that enabled them to draft and successfully ratify a constitution. And just to add one more point to that, the thing that they realized is that a constitutional negotiation is by definition all about giving the other side more than it deserves. If you think, well, we've won a plurality or a majority, and so we're not going to give you what you want, your constitution will fail. Because if enough people are unhappy with a constitutional draft, then they'll go into the streets, they'll protest, they might even use violence. And then the whole constitutional deal will fall through, sort of like what happened ultimately in Iraq, where Sunnis were cut out of the constitutional process. They partly cut themselves out and then they just used violence and that deeply undercut the constitution. So you have this one North African Arab country that has a functioning, effective, seemingly sustainable constitutional democratic system. Why aren't its neighbors and the other Arab countries looking at it and saying, yeah, that's what we wanted. We want what they have. People in some of those countries did say that initially, as in Egypt. But then Egypt wasn't able to produce the kind of compromise and consensus that Tunisia did. So the elected government, the Muslim Brotherhood-backed government, did not successfully compromise with secularists on the other side. They made some initial gestures in that direction. But they were paranoid. 
not without good reason, but they were paranoid that if they let in too many liberals, they would undercut themselves. They were paranoid that if they let in too many of the old regime, they would undercut themselves. So they actually tried to do it all without compromise, and that failed. They just couldn't get sufficient buy-in. And in a much more extreme way in Syria, what happened there is that we never even got to the moment of the formation of a new government because we never got the ultimate collapse of Bashar al-Assad's regime because Assad fought back with violence. And instead of the protests, which began pretty peacefully, leading to regime change, they actually created circumstances where the government started a civil war. And once that started, people in lots of countries around the Arabic-speaking world started saying, whoa, wait a minute, the structure of our countries may not be capable of surviving regime change. And once people start thinking that and looking at worst-case scenarios like civil war, such as we also have in Libya and such as exists now in Yemen, both in the aftermath of the Arab Spring, that starts making people really think long and hard about whether it's worth it to try to stay in the streets and remove the regime. At the other end of the spectrum from Tunisia's liberal democratic state, you have ISIS's medieval theocratic state. And you say that that too was a product of the Arab Spring in a strange way. Why was ISIS part of what came out of the original protests in Tunisia? In two ways. The Arab Spring, first of all, created the conditions for the civil war in Syria, which created a political vacuum, a power vacuum, which allowed ISIS to emerge and call itself a caliphate. So that was the first immediate way that the Arab Spring set the conditions for the emergence of the Islamic State. But the more profound similarity between the Islamic State and the peaceful uprisings is that the people who founded the Islamic State were aspiring to create a new form of political order, which they themselves would control, where they would be sovereign, and in which they could effectuate a system of government that they believed in. Now, what's sad, horrifying, and indeed tragic, and this is one of the reasons I call the book The Arab Winter a tragedy, is that the form of government that the Islamic State supporters wanted was not utopian, although they thought it was utopian, but it was dystopian. It was the opposite. You know, it involved murder on a huge scale. It involved rape on a huge scale, forced sexual slavery. And for the people who were engaged in this movement, those were fulfillments and authentic manifestations, they believed, of Islamic tradition going back to the Middle Ages which did exist on the books. If you read the classical Islamic legal sources from the Middle Ages, you do have text saying, you know, you can do these things in wartime. But they were not practiced on a comparable scale to this, certainly in the Middle Ages. And also nobody's really tried in the Muslim world to govern in anything like this way in hundreds of years. So they were doing something that was a throwback, a self-conscious throwback. And it was worse than it ever had, in fact, been in history, almost certainly. So it was horrifying. and deeply deserve the condemnation that we've all given to it. And the world had to take action slowly but surely to go and get rid of the Islamic State. And I'm super glad that they did. Yet at the same time, we shouldn't forget that the folks who were doing this were engaged in the process of trying to self-determine. They were just doing it in a way that turned out to be pretty evil. I mean, I was mystified, as a lot of people were, how this you know barbaric sort of cult, as it seemed, was attracting volunteers from all over the world 
including from Western countries, in the thousands. You talk about it as a utopian revolutionary movement. But why was it that young people, including young women, in many cases, went to join the Islamic State completely of their own volition? I really think it was the opportunity that they perceived to build something new, to build a new society, to build a utopian society on what they saw as a classically authentic Islamic model. In that sense, the Islamic State was really different from Al-Qaeda. People did come from around the world to join Al-Qaeda in much smaller numbers. But to join Al-Qaeda basically meant you were going to fight and probably die in the jihad. You weren't building something new for the most part. You were just trying to break something, namely what is imagined to be the occupation of Muslim lands by non-Muslim invaders. In contrast, once the Islamic State was a caliphate, that it had territory, that it was building a society, that was a chance for people to say, much the way that young people from around the world wanted to go to Cuba after the Cuban Revolution, or some people from around the world wanted to go to Russia after the Bolshevik Revolution, you say, well, here's a new world being created, and I want to be a part of that. And so they didn't come for the spectacular violence, but they also were willing to tolerate and participate in even that kind of violence, which also happens after other revolutions that partake of this kind of millennialist, religious, revivalist, reformist idea. And they don't have to be religious. They could just be communism, which is itself a kind of religion in a certain respect. People will do unbelievably radical things that are horrifying in circumstances like those, when they feel that they're in a revolutionary moment, all bets are off, you know, the end times in some way are there. And again, it doesn't have to be end times in a religious sense. It could be that we're just creating a new society. And that's why a lot of revolutions end in brutal violence or entail a lot of brutal violence in their aftermath. And otherwise, normal people will do abnormal things under those conditions. So your book was written pre-pandemic, but obviously now all of these countries are having their varying experiences with COVID-19. Pandemic can either bond people to their government if a government seems to respond to it well, or it can alienate people from their government if it handles it badly. What are we seeing in the countries you write about in the book, in Egypt, in Syria, and Tunisia? Is there another Arab Spring that could come out of the pandemic? So far, and, you know, knock on wood, COVID hasn't had the kind of transformative social impact in the former Arab Spring countries that it's had in Europe or in the United States or even in some Asian countries. And it's still too soon to know whether that's because there aren't that many cases or whether because the cases just aren't being recorded or acknowledged or recognized. So there's great worry, especially in Tunisia, about whether the rapid economic decline that's going to hit Tunisia very hard, because Tunisia is very dependent on tourism, is going to destabilize the social fabric even further. And it remains to be seen whether autocracies like those in Egypt are robust enough to withstand social pressure around that, although I think they probably are. I think Egyptians have really learned the lesson that they can't get out and do it again. That said, you know, when I was just getting the book into press, there were two events in the Arabic-speaking world that were weirdly like after-images of the Arab Spring. There was a kind of Arab Spring-like uprising in Algeria, which is next to Tunisia. And then there was a similar one simultaneously in Sudan. And in both cases, they all knew about the Arab Spring. They were using somewhat similar slogans. 
they knew the script. And the dictators also knew the script. And in each case, it led to some meaningful change in who was governing the country. But in neither case has it led to a fundamental transformation in the form of government. They're moving in both cases more slowly. There's more give and take. And although there are transitions in who's governing, there aren't fundamental societal transformations like we've seen in Tunisia. And what's fascinating about that is on the one hand, it shows you that even though everyone's seen the Arab Spring movie, it still has power. People are still looking to use those principles of self-determination to change their lives. On the other hand, the bad guys know that too. You know, the autocratic regimes, if you think they're the bad guys, as I tend to, they also understand that they can give a little bit and then reconsolidate power. And so what that suggests to me is, even though I think we're in a winter in the Arab world where we're not going to see huge or substantial transitions to self-government in future years, there is always the possibility for spring to break out again. And we've seen that in a more limited way in those countries. And so that's one slightly less pessimistic conclusion. You know, we're in a winter, there is an Arab winter, but eventually seasons are cyclical and this winter will give rise to a new spring. Yeah. So uh, if you'll indulge me as the temporary occupant of the Noah Feldman chair, I want to ask one or two Noah Feldman questions. Um, and, And the first is about the range of stuff you write about. Your your previous book was a huge intellectual biography of James Madison, a wonderful book with seemingly very little to do with the uh, Arabic linguistic analysis you do in the Arab winter. Your book before that was about U.S.-China relations. Now, in the podcast world, we welcome polymaths like you. It's terrific. You can talk to anybody about anything. But in academia, don't they hate people like you? Well, I think um, hate might be strong. I think the the way that academics usually express their disdain is they just don't read your book, and that's fair enough. Um, I, I don't know that it's polymathic, though. I mean, for me, there is a central theme that runs through all of the books that I've written and a lot of my other work, and that is constitutions. Hmm. The deep question being how do human beings get together to govern themselves when they pick the structures of how they're going to govern themselves? Not just the day-to-day who's up, who's down partisan politics, but how are they going to organize power? And, you know, my book about Madison was about the single greatest genius in the last 500 years in the world on that question. So that was the central theme for me there. And even when I was writing about the U.S. and China, I wrote extensively about whether China was developing a set of constitutional norms with a new method for transitioning for government in and out that would enable it to compete globally as a governing model with the United States. So that's the theme that's in all of the stuff that I write. And I try to hope that my colleagues will recognize that I do have that theme going so they won't think that I'm too all over the place. And well, I guess the, and the, my last question is sort of about your involvement in constitution making in a way. Um, here's this guy, Noah Feldman in Tunisia giving advice about how much Sharia should influence the writing of the constitution. Um, And I do wonder about someone of Jewish heritage in this Islamic country and dealing with this topic generally, what's it like for you and what's it like for them? I know Tunisia is one of many North African countries that used to have a big Jewish population, doesn't anymore. Did they welcome you? My experience is that 99% of the time, nobody cares if you're Jewish. For the most part, on an ordinary basis, people don't think that religious background matters all that much. Your primary identity, if you're there from abroad, is as an American. 
But that 1% can make a difference. And where it makes a difference is when things go south. So a Saudi Arabian newspaper published a completely invented fictional article that basically made me into an international man of mystery, you know, a spy for Dick Cheney and a spy for the, you know, Israeli intelligence and attributed to me all kinds of, you know, travels and constitutional accomplishments all over the Arabic speaking world, including countries I'd never been to. And actually, I got got the Saudi paper with the help of a Saudi lawyer friend of mine to actually retract the story, although I don't think it really made much difference. And then I didn't think about it much until my very last trip to Tunisia. And so I had this crazy experience of being in the Constituent Assembly, watching the debates and ratification of the Constitution, and then hearing my name. And there was a, a delegate from a very minor party who was just trying to make trouble for the various majority parties. And he brought up my name on the floor in order to criticize the parties I was working with and basically repeated some version of this old you know, idea that I was a spy of some kind. And I very quietly got up and walked out of the observation deck and headed for my car with my briefcase. But unfortunately, by the time I got out the door, you know, the press was out there, there was a gaggle and they were calling out to me and asking me if I was a spy. And I stopped and told them that I wasn't a spy. And, you know, I headed for my car and I went to my hotel and I packed my bag and I, moving as slowly and calmly as I could, went to the airport and literally bought a ticket on the very first flight out of the country. It felt that threatening. It felt like it was not a good moment to be on national television being denounced as a Jewish slash Israeli, obviously I'm not Israeli, slash American spy, and I'm not a spy. And when I came home, I showed the video, which was then showed on national television, to my kids. And I said, so does it look like a plausible denial? And my son said to me, are you crazy? Like, you look like a complete spy. You know, I realized <laughs> there isn't any good way to deny being a spy. And then the, the last coda to it was, on the evening news that night, there was a debate about, you know, was I a spy or was I a perfectly normal guy who'd been there six times helping out with the Constitution? And it was an intense debate. And I was being defended by a really impressive uh, woman who was a member of the Constituent Assembly, a young woman who belonged to the Islamist political party, you know, wearing a hijab. And it got a little heated. And I sent the clip to my mother, who doesn't speak Arabic. And she said, oh my gosh, you know, like, is that person coming after you? And I said, no, you got it backwards. You know, the Islamist woman is the one saying, Feldman is just a constitutional law professor who's been here a bunch of times to help out. And, you know, this is completely paranoid and crazy. It was the secularists who were trying to embarrass the Islamists. So to me, the takeaway was there in a democratic country, which Tunisia had become by then, you could actually have a public debate where someone from a major party with a political future would go on television and defend the Jewish American constitutional law professor and tell the people who were being paranoid and crazy, you're being paranoid and crazy. That could not have happened in any other Arabic speaking country in the modern period. So I walked away from it feeling positive. And although I haven't been back to Tunisia since, I would happily go back now. I mean, Tunisia is a functioning democracy. It's not a, not a paradise, but it is really a functioning democracy in the Middle East with good basic rights. And that's not nothing. That's an incredible accomplishment. You know, we're used to hearing People saying, oh, Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. That's just not true. You know, Tunisia yeah. is a functioning democracy and has been for some years now. And if the dominoes were to start falling back the other way, what would be next? I mean, what's the next country where you could imagine giving some behind the scenes advice about how to have a good constitution? I wish I could say, oh, I know where it'll be. You know, it'll be in Beirut, you know, or it'll, you know, be in Amman. 
I don't think it's as simple as that. There's a good reason for that, which is that in the end, this is the central theme of the book. It's actually up to the people in these Arabic-speaking countries to decide for themselves that they're ready to self-govern. It's not something which an external actor can make happen. You know, the United States invaded Iraq. We helped them draft a constitution. I participated in that. It wasn't enough. In fact, we left Iraq worse off than we found it, which is a terrible moral responsibility that we have and that I feel, you know, my own proportionate share in because it wasn't chosen by them. They need to make that determination for themselves. And to me, that's the ultimate takeaway here. People will try. They may not succeed all the time, but that's also part of what makes the effort noble. You know, if you know you can succeed in doing something, it's nice that you're doing it, but it's not that noble to try. Nobility is where you take a major risk in life and you try to make something work and it can fail. And so to me, the fact that the Arab Spring failed to achieve its goals in a lot of places is not a reason to discount the nobility of the effort. It was still noble. And although the results were tragic in a lot of places, there's still Tunisia to remind you that they didn't have to end in tragedy. Uh, well, no, I just want to end uh, by recommending the book again. It is absolutely as interesting as you are talking about it. And um, I guess this is the point where I get to say thank you for joining me on your show. Thank you for joining me on my show to be me on my show. I really appreciate it, Jacob. Thanks. Bye-bye. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with research help from Zui Nguyen. Mastering is by Jason Gambrell and Martin Gonzalez. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. I also write a regular column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at bloomberg.com Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch... um, Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, "This is this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything?" I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover: The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, and if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast Show page or on Pushkin.fm. Slash plus.